So I'm on the back end of a summer cold, and there's some danger that I might lose my voice this morning after yelling at the people in the first service for a while. Um, but the good news is, I know some of you are concerned that the sermon might get shortened, and that's a source of much sorrow for you, but the good news is Carson does a really pretty awesome impersonation of me, and he's consented to come up and read my notes if I need him to. So you'll get the full sermon delivery one way or the other uh, this morning. Um, want to, this morning, we're going to find our way back to another one of those back porch conversations with the guy I'm calling Grandpa Q. Q is for Kohelet. It's the title of the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. It just means the preacher or the teacher. And he's been sharing wisdom with us. He's doing it again today from his lifelong quest for wisdom and meaning in life. He alluded to his quest back in chapter 7 last week. He says, I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things. Now, lots of people have suggested over the years that the best guess as to who this Grandpa Q actually is was uh, King Solomon. And if that turns out to be right, and I guess one day we'll find out, um, then we're getting some pretty solid advice in the book of Ecclesiastes for how we're supposed to live our life. Listen to how the Bible describes the wisdom of King Solomon. 1 Kings 4 says, God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the East and all the wisdom of Egypt, right? So when we sit under the teaching of the book Ecclesiastes, it's like, let's take some notes here. This is not just any old blogger that we're reading. This is, this is the wisest of the wise under the inspiration of our good God. And as Carson pointed out last week, um, Grandpa Q is all about wisdom. He loves some wisdom. He thinks it's the best way to live your life is to let it be guided by wisdom. And to underscore that vital point from Ecclesiastes, I'm, I want to tell you a story. Um, a couple things you need to know about me. I'm a biker. Uh, more precisely, I'm a cyclist. Think Trek, not Harley. Um, <laughs> the other thing you need to know for the purposes of this story, I enjoy watching birds. I'm not particularly good at it. I'm kind of a, hey, there's a bird. There's another bird kind of a guy. But I enjoy doing it. And these two interests of mine come together, cycling and birding, to help me underscore the point and introduce the point that I think the first point that Grandpa Q wants us to understand this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 8. But before I can tell you the story, you need a little bit of backstory about crows. Um, crows are big birds. They can be about two feet tall. They can have a wingspan up to three feet. Um, and they're smart really, really smart. Um, they do facial recognition. Um, that means they can remember you. Um, there's an article by a guy named David Deedle, and he recounts research in Seattle that was performed on an experiment with some crows around a college campus. They captured seven of the birds, tagged them, and then let them go. But they did all this wearing these creepy masks. And so they were testing whether the crows would recognize human, or human faces or not. It turns out they can, 
to a frightening degree. So whenever the scientists walked around the campus with a mask on, the crows would scold and dive bomb them. Um, because along with the ability to recognize us as individuals, the researchers also learned that crows can hold a grudge. And pretty soon it wasn't just the first seven crows who'd been captured um, who were doing this. Other crows, ones that haven't even been captured in the first place, also started dive bombing the scientists, the mask scientists as well. So he writes, in case you think they were just telling each other, get the guy with the mask, they weren't. The test was repeated with multiple people wearing different kinds of masks. And without fail, the crows left the masked men who hadn't messed with them alone, but went murder crazy on the mask that had been worn while capturing them. So even subsequent generations of crows, whose only experience with the masked scientist, he says, was from stories that were told around the crow campfires at night, displayed the exact same antagonistic behavior when encountering the mask. So not only do they recognize us as individuals, but they have the means to describe us in detail to one another, even across generations. He says, you know what that means. If you've ever messed with a crow, even if it was just the one time decades ago, his children might be out there right now plotting bloody revenge against you. So crows are big. Crows are smart, really smart. They can use tools. Not only can they use tools, uh, they can make them. So this crow is trying to get some meat out of that tube. It's in a little bucket. But the meat keeps sliding off the, the, the little piece of wire that he picked up to get the meat. So wa watch what he does next. He's going to take out the wire, and he's going to bend it, and he is going to make a hook to reach in, and nobody taught him to do this. He just figured this out. Grab the little bucket, pull it out, and get the meat. Okay. So all of that to say, crows are really big, really smart birds, and they're really wary. So we have some bird feeders at our house, most of the birds. If you're standing at the, at the window, you're watching the birds, the birds are just like having a ton. You know, the squirrels, they just eat the bird seed. Nobody cares. But if a crow's on the bird feeder, you walk up to the window, they fly away. They're very, very wary. So that's the backstory on crows that you need this morning to make sense out of what I'm going to tell you. So I'm out biking. Um, <clears throat> I, I crest a hill. And I'm coming down, Steph's behind me, one of the rare times, Steph's behind me on a bike. And I crest the hill, and I'm coming down, I'm coasting down the hill, so I'm going pretty quiet. Down the hill. And I look ahead, and I see some roadkill, and on the roadkill are some buzzards and a bunch of crows. And as I get closer, the buzzards fly off, and the crows all fly off, because they're smart and they're wary, except for this one crow. Um, he has his back to me. And he's really, evidently, really focused on the roadkill. So I get about five feet away from this crow, and he looks up at me, and I look down at him, and we make eye contact. <laughs> and crows have really black eyes, it turns out. All of a sudden, he realizes that all of his buddies have bailed on him, and it's just him and the roadkill and me coming at him on my bike. And so he takes off, and he flies directly into my bike. So now I have a crow, all 36-inch wingspan of him, 
trap between my leg and the vertical post on my bike, and he's flailing around in there. Um, what you need to know is that on my bike, my shoe, it's a road bike, so my shoe is actually clipped into the pedal so that it won't come out. Um, and you can normally just kick your heel and kick right out of it unless you are in a kind of a crazy state of mind, like there's a crow between your leg and the bike post, in which case you can't get your leg out for any reason. And so this crow is flailing around between my leg and the post on the bike. And um, eventually he comes to his right mind and he exits stage right. And I, I did not fall over. I looked back and said, I said, Steph, did you see that? She says, yes, I saw that. How did you not fall off of your bike? Um, so, but this is, Grand, here's Grandpa Q's first point from that story. Um, crows are really smart, but not that crow. Don't be that crow, okay? This is, this is Grandpa Q's point that he wants to make. Don't be that crow. The Bible, the language that the Bible would use to describe that crow is the language of a fool. And a fool, according to the book of Proverbs, a book very similar in feel to the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, Solomon was likely a major contributor uh, to the book of Proverbs. Describes a fool this way. A fool hates correction and won't listen to advice. He won't change his ways. He lacks discipline. He speaks recklessly. He's too sure of himself. He's easily angered. He runs in packs. He destroys families. He grieves his parents. He refuses to make things right. He blows money. He doesn't plan wisely. He's unreliable. He trusts in himself too much. He's lazy and loves pleasure. Fools, the book of Proverbs tells us, are headed for destruction, shame, death, ruin, and punishment. As another Mr. T so eloquently put it, pity the fool, right? <laughs> and Grandpa Q has made it clear throughout the book, don't be a fool. Choose wisdom. Chapter 2, he said, then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. So don't be that crow. Don't, don't act foolishly. Choose the way of wisdom. This is where Grandpa Q starts chapter 8 with us. He's calling us, inviting us into wisdom. Who is like the wise, he says, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A, wise man, a man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. So he starts with these two questions. They have kind of implied answers. Who is like the wise? Nobody's like the wise. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Only the wise know an interpretation of a thing. And then he says, wisdom is so good for you that it changes your, your face, it changes your countenance, it makes you smile when you live a life marked by wisdom. And he gives us, he goes on, he's going to give us a very specific case uh, when wisdom is invaluable. And what he's thinking of when you get called before the authorities. In his case, when you get called before a king. Look at verse 2. I say, keep the king's command. Because of God's oath to him, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does, the king that is, does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. So here's his advice, should you find yourself before a king, and not necessarily a good or nice king. Don't storm out of his presence. 
keep his command, especially if there's an oath involved. The whole don't storm out of his presence thing has to do with being hasty. But back in the day, um, if you appeared uninvited before the king, um, that was a capital offense. You could be put to death for that in some cultures. And so imagine hastily running out of the king's presence. Probably carries a similar kind of consequence. He points out the king is sovereign, kind of what king means, sovereign, ruler. And he's got power to do what he pleases. So be careful, he says. Be wise about what you say, about how you act, about what causes, uh, what causes you align yourself with before the king. Be wise before the king. He says obedience will protect you from any evil befalling you, and wisdom will be a good guide. Now, most of us are not likely to find ourselves before a despot king. Um, but these days, there do seem to be an abundance of despot politicians and despot judges and despot bosses. And you might, may find yourself there. And should you? Be wise, he says. So, if, just as an aside, if you know a believer who's in politics... I hope you'll pray for them that they would have the wisdom of Solomon. Oh, they need it to, to navigate that minefield, right? So I had a friend. He worked for a small business. He was the money guy. Uh, the owner was the CEO of the business. That was my friend's boss. And my friend told me, this is straight from his mouth, that he would regularly get in shouting matches with his boss about how to run the company because my friend thought he knew better than the boss how to run the company. And, you know, he may have been right, but he wasn't wise, and he no longer works for that company. Right? <laughs> um, see, Grandpa Q here, he, he, don't miss this in light of what I'm going to go on and say, what Grandpa Q goes on to say. He loves him some wisdom. He's a big fan. It's way better than the alternative, which is being a fool. But, and Carson brought this up last week in chapter 7, um, wisdom has some profound limitations to it. So when we talk about wisdom, it's a big idea. It can mean anything from common sense or street smarts to the fear of the Lord. And Grandpa Q in chapter 8 is going to walk through that whole expanse with us of wisdom. But he starts and points out a big limitation of the common sense end of the wisdom scale um, that he has unearthed in his personal search for wisdom in the next few verses starting in verse 6. He says, there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or, or the wind, that could be translated, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will any wickedness, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. So even though there is a wise path, he says, through all things, there are sources of great trouble and sorrow that exceed the limits of our wisdom and understanding. The first of which, he says, is in verse 7. Um, we, we don't know what is yet to be. Who can tell us what, will, what is yet to be? So we can't, even the wise man can't know the future. Wisdom can generate predictions and probabilities and, and possibilities and likelihoods, but we can't know the future with any certainty. We don't know if it'll be as 
he wrote earlier, a time to weep or a time to laugh? Or will it be a time for war or a time for peace? We don't know. If we go back to my bike riding every, every day that we ride stuff, and I sit up on the road in front of us, I said, well, where are we going to go? What's our route today? And we have to pick our route. In the back of mind, I'm always wondering, which route will not have some crazy texting driver that's trying to kill us? I don't know. I can't know that. Um, the future is beyond knowing, even in such a simple thing, wisdom can't grasp that. And if it isn't troubling enough that not only can the wisest of us not know the future, um, Grandpa Q laments that our wisdom cannot even control the situations we find ourselves in the present, really important situations. In verse 8, he says, No man has power to retain the spirit or the wind or power over the day of death. There's no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. Here, essentially, he gives a short list of things that even the wisest among us cannot control. Um, Professor Sidney Gradanus gives us a little summary. He says, he observed that wisdom has its limitations. People don't know what the future holds. They don't know when disasters will strike. They're powerless to restrain the wind, powerless to change the day of death, powerless to receive a discharge amidst a battle. Even the wicked, who seem all-powerful, cannot be delivered by their wickedness. And so, Grandpa Q says, all this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. It's an interesting phrase. You know, he doesn't use it, the label at this precise moment. He will in a verse or two, but essentially saying this is all kind of vanity, that word that we've been hearing over and over. And as he vents his frustration about the limits of his wise searching, he mentions one thing in particular that's vanity. And that's abuse by those who have power over others. That little phrase, uh, when man had power over man to his hurt. And it's a word of warning to all of us who are in places of power over others, whether that's politics or workplace or home, um, to abuse that power at the expense or the hurt of another. He's telling us that's vanity. It, it does not accomplish the end that you hope it will. It cannot, it will not. And it's this thought that seems to turn his thoughts now to another, perhaps even more serious limitation of wisdom, and that's making sense out of injustice. Look at verses 10 and 11. He said, Then I saw the wicked buried. So it's like he's watching a funeral. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. So two things he hasn't been able to sort out on his quest. First is what we maybe could call a false eulogy, where somebody lives a life that's of ill repute, they're terrible people, but you go to their funeral and it's like they're some kind of saint. And you find yourself sitting there going, am I in the right, am I in the right funeral home? Did I, you pull up the ad, is this the right guy? This is not the guy I knew. Um, but the second thing that makes no sense out of is a failure to execute justice speedily. And as a result, evil runs rampant in, this, in the city. There's no deterrent. 
What he can't figure out is how could a God who's a God of justice allow such things to go on and on and on? It makes no sense to him. There's another thing that troubles him. He can't sort out. Down in verse 14, he says, There's a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. In the language of the New Testament, this is when evil is called good and good is called evil. This is not just vanity, according to Grandpa Q. This is bracketed vanity, right? He calls it vanity before he says it, and he calls it vanity after it. Um, This one seems to really trouble him. The song says, only the good die young. Why is that? Why would God allow that to happen? It's it's injustice. And it's everywhere, it seems. It's in political maneuvering. It's in promotions at work, maybe awards at school. It's in the court system. It even happens in real estate. I ran across this troubling story recently. It's just two years ago. An Indianapolis resident named Carlette Duffy was looking to borrow against her home's equity And so she got an appraisal for her home, standard operating procedure. She was surprised when the appraised amount was $125,000 for her home in Indianapolis, which seemed low compared to the findings she'd heard anecdotally from friends and family. So she had another appraisal done, and the second one came out at just $110,000. That was just $10,000 more than she paid for the home four years ago, pre-pandemic. So she was nagged by her suspicions that the lowball appraisals were because she was an African-American. And so she got a third appraisal. This time, she took pains not to reveal her racial identity. She only corresponded by email. She took down family photos and other art in her home that might tip that off. She even asked a friend's white husband to stand in during the appraiser's visit to the home. That appraisal came back at $259,000, more than twice what the other most generous appraisal had been. Now, I don't know all the details. I don't know how the appraisal worked. I don't know what was in their mind, what they were thinking. Um, Maybe the article I read in the Indy Star was missing something really important. But it sure seems to me that there's something not right about that. Something not right in that city. It's Indianapolis in 2021, by the way, not Mobile in 1957. There's something about that system. There's something about our hearts. It's not right. And and Kohelet struggles with understanding how or why a God who is supposed to be so just just allows this to go on and on and on and keep happening and happening and happening, injustice after injustice. And it leads him to this last declaration of the frustrating limits of his wisdom in that, these closing verses in 16. He says, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that's done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Carson put it really well last week. He says, you can't unscramble life's deepest mysteries. God has some things encrypted, and you can't hack in. And that includes some of life's greatest 
troubles and sorrows too. And at this point in our passage, it, you kind of feel like saying, gee, thanks, Grandpa. I think I'm going to go drown my sorrows in a bottle of kombucha or something. Um, can, can seminary students have kombucha? Is that okay? Is that, Sam, can seminary students have kombucha? Is that, is that it's permitted? Okay. Um, but what, give me just a second. I don't want you to give up on Grandpa Q yet. Um, because I mentioned that wisdom's a big idea. It includes street smarts, for sure, but it also includes what the book of Proverbs says, the wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. And uh, I skipped over two or three verses that Grandpa Q gives us to point us to that deeper wisdom to serve as anchor for our souls when our everyday wisdom fails us, when we can't make sense out of it. And in the kind of situations he's been writing about, are included, not knowing the future, um, death, war, injustice, evil. On those days, he said, here are two things that you can count on. The first is in verses 12 and 13. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, injustice, right? Yet I know, I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. So Kohelet says even when injustice seems to reign unchecked and the bad guys are winning, he says, I know. Not I hope or I sure wish. He says, I know that it will be well with those who fear God. It shall be well. That's his certainty. The oldest um, writings in English by a woman that are preserved for us are by a, a lady named Julian of Norwich. She was a Christian mystic from the 14th century. And she was thinking about this very thing, and she wrote these words. She says, In my folly before this time, an encounter she had with Christ, I often wondered why, by the great foreseeing wisdom of God, the onset of sin was not prevented. For then, I thought, all should have been well. But Jesus, in a vision she had, answered with these words and said to her, It was necessary that there should be sin, but all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manner of thing shall be well. And so, Kohelet says, This hope, that all things shall be well belongs to the people who fear God. And he says that all over this. Fear God, fear God, and all things shall be well. But not so the wicked. All shall not be well for them because they do not fear God. Um, so this theme of fearing God, it's going to come up at the end of chapter 12. Uh, it's going to kind of tie a bow on the book and make sense out of it all for us. And we'll, we'll talk about it a lot at that point, I'm sure. Um, but at this point, let me, let me kind of just describe what the fear of God is and is not. It's not being afraid of God. It's not what he's talking about here. Maybe that's the, the fear of God from, someone, from these wicked that he talks about. But when he talks about the fear of God amongst God's people, he's not talking about being afraid of God. It's more like 
in awe of, of God. And uh, Pastor John Piper helped me with a story. I'll share it with you. He said, suppose you're exploring an unknown glacier in the north of Greenland in the dead of winter. And just as you reach a sheer cliff with a spectacular view of miles and miles of jagged ice and mountains of snow, a terrible storm breaks in. The wind is so strong that the fear rises in your heart that it might blow you over the cliff. But in the midst of the storm, you discover a cleft in the ice where you can hide. And here you are secure. But even though secure, the awesome might of the storm rages on and you watch it with a kind of trembling awe as it surges out across the distant glaciers. At first, there was the fear that this terrible storm and awesome terrain might claim your life, but then you found a refuge and gained the hope that you would be safe. But not everything in the feeling called fear vanished from your heart, only the life-threatening part. There remained the trembling, the awe, the wonder, the feeling that you would never want to tangle with such a storm or be the adversary of such a power. And then he says, and so it is with God. God's greatness is greater than the universe of stars and his power is beyond the unendurable cold of Arctic storms. Yet he cups his hand around us and says, take refuge in my love and let the terrors of my power become the awesome fireworks of your happy night sky. The fear of God, he says, is what is left of the storm when you have a safe place to watch right in the middle of it. And of course, we know from our vantage point that Christ is that safe place, that faith in Christ affords a refuge for us even from the severest judgments of God. And Grandpa Q here connects this awesome fear of the Lord with faith in his ultimate justice on behalf of his victims and their perpetrators. He says, it shall be well. It shall be well. He is confident in the ultimate justice that God will dispense um, that, that he can't understand that exceeds the limits of his wisdom. He clings to this hope when he cannot figure it out. God is just. All shall be well for those who hope and fear in God. And Jesus spoke of this justice himself. He said, an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus promises justice. And what wisdom cannot always see, faith can. So this morning, it's important, though, just to pause and ask, do you have a sure hope that all shall be well with you before God on the day of future justice? Do you have a faith in Christ that reassures you of that? Jesus extends this beautiful promise, if you will but trust him. He says to one of his friends, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So Grandpa Q here gives us a hope to cling to when our wisdom fails us. It's the fear of the Lord and surety in his ultimate justice. He gives us another one, a really interesting one down in verse 15. I'll just mention it in passing. Um, but it's really important. He says in verse 15, And I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. 
and I commend joy. This, this just might be Daniel Cresswell's life first. <laughs> but remember the context here? It's when the greatest of injustices come, when the wicked receive the reward of the righteous and the righteous receive the reward of the wicked. Then, Grandpa Q says, on that day, I commend joy to you. And he urges us to treasure the good gifts that God has given us, even amongst the great troubles and sorrows, even up against death and war and wrongs done all around you and even to you. Even there, he says, choose the joy of God's everyday kindness to you in food and drink and the sun and the life that's around you. Choose joy. I ran across a really encouraging story of one man who embraced Grandpa Q's and embodied it, Grandpa Q's counsel really beautifully. His name's Lee Horton. He and his brother Dennis were convicted of robbery and murder, sentenced to life in prison without parole. But they always maintained their innocence, and at last, after being locked up for a quarter of a century, they were granted clemency and released. Here's what Lee says. He says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you honestly. The first thing that I was aware of when I walked out of the doors and sat in the car and realized I wasn't handcuffed. And for all the time I'd been in prison, every time I was transported anywhere, I always had handcuffs on. And that moment right there was the most emotional moment that I had. Even when they told me the governor had signed the papers, it didn't set in until I was in that car and I didn't have those handcuffs on. He says, I don't think people understand that the punishment is being in prison. When you take away everything, everything becomes beautiful to you. He says, when we got out, we went to the DMV to get our licenses back. My brother and I stood in line for two and a half hours. And we heard all the bad things about the DMV. We had the most beautiful time. He said all the people were looking at us because we were smiling and we were laughing and they couldn't understand why we were so happy. And it was just, it was just was that. Just being in that line was a beautiful thing. I was in awe of everything around me. It's like my mind was just heightened to every small nuance just to be able to just look out of a window, just walk down a street and just inhale the fresh air just to see people interacting. It woke something up in me, something that I don't know if it died or if it went to sleep. I've been having epiphanies every single day since I've been released, he said. One of my morning rituals, he says, every morning is I send a message of good morning, good morning, good morning, have a nice day to every one of my 42 contacts. And they're like, how long can he keep doing this? He said, but they don't understand that I was deprived. And now it's like I have been released and I've been reborn into a better day, into a new day. Like the person I was no longer exists. I've stepped through the looking glass onto the other side, and everything is beautiful. So rather than focus on what he cannot understand, what was taken from him, what would embitter him, he's choosing joy. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's famous for being a pastor who gave his life in a Nazi um, prisoner of war camp, wrote this. He said, our life is not only a great deal of trouble and hard work, it is also refreshment and joy in God's goodness. We labor, but God nourishes and sustains us. There is a reason to celebrate. God is calling us to rejoice, to celebrate in the midst of our working day, even when those working days are beyond our understanding.
May God grant us eyes to see his mercy and kindness even on the days when wisdom fails us. Let's pray. Lord, the troubles of the book of Ecclesiastes are, are universal. They are ours. They've been ours in the past. Many of us, they are ours now, and they will be for many of us. And God, I ask your mercy that we would cling to the, this greater wisdom, the fear of the Lord, and joy in your mercy, your daily mercies, even when our wisdom fails us. Have mercy on us even this week with these two kindnesses, we pray, O oh Lord. Amen.